turn to 1 Timothy, the, the first letter of Paul written to Timothy, right after First uh, and Second Thessalonians, right after Ephesians, Philippians, or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First Timothy. If I, I had this nice introduction and all this written, but we're going to skip through that so we can attempt to get some of this done today. I appreciate your, your grace for that. But if I asked you today, if I asked you today what makes something precious or what makes something valuable, what, what makes something important to you that you would guard it with all your life, how, how would you answer that? What, what makes whatever it is that is most precious to you, what makes it that way? What, what gives it that place in your life? As I thought about that this week, I thought about a couple things. I thought about if something is rare, if there's not very many of them, that, that, that increases that thing's value. It increases its, its worth if, the, if it's rare. Another thing would be if, if, it's, if it's priceless or if it's, if it's costly. If it requires a lot to, uh, to purchase it or to possess it, that, that would increase something's value. Another thing I thought about this week as I, as I contemplated that myself, I thought about, well, who authored it? You know, I, we, we've said it before, you know, some of these paintings that I see sell for millions of dollars, it looks like a fifth grader did them. But, but yet, you know, if you put Van Gogh at the bottom of it, all of a sudden things worth millions of dollars. I'm thinking, I think I did that in fourth grade. I think I painted Starry Night back when I was about eight. But, but who, who authored it? Where, did it? where did that thing originate the cost of it, the, the, va- the quantity of it. Those things all affect something's value. It affects its worth, affects the level to which that, that object is precious to you or valuable. If I asked you today, what's the most valuable possession you have? I want you to think for a second how you'd answer that. The most valuable, the most valued thing that you have in your possession right now. What, what's the most valuable thing in your life? How would you answer that? We, we, I want you to hold that thought because we, we begin a journey today in, in 1 Timothy 1, in a study of, 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 well, 1 Timothy, we'll start in verse 1. But in, and there were some binders. There were, I put a box of binders down here and they're gone. So if you want a new binder, we bought new binders. Um, they were right there, and now they're not, and so uh, I was going to offer you a new binder, but I'm tricking you. Uh, there are new binders. If you want one, we'll get you one maybe next week. But I, I chose this letter because I believe that it runs parallel to much of what we face today as a church, that I face individually, that you face individually, that, that we face collectively. Timothy was a young pastor uh, I, I, I'm a young pastor, if you will. I've not been doing this very long. Uh, the, the church at Ephesus faced significant issues inside and outside. We as a church today, I think we would be honest, we, we constantly face threats inside and outside. 
One of the biggest enemies, one of the biggest enemies that not only the church at Ephesus where, where Timothy was, but, but that we face as individuals, but not only, not only individually, but corporately as a believer, is, is the effects of false teaching. False teaching. I'm afraid that if, if we were to, to list the enemies of the church, if we were to list your enemies that you face as a believer today, my fear is that false teaching oftentimes doesn't rise up to the top of one of the number one concerns that a Christian has. And yet every single book, I, my wife and the ladies just finished Amazing Collection. And, and every single week I would say, Karen, what book are you teaching on? Because I don't really pay attention half the time, and so when she, when she, sometimes, and so I should have remembered that last week you're on Romans, you're we, on this one, but I would say, hey, what book are you teaching? She'd tell me, and we'd start talking about it, and you know what? You know what every single book talked about? False teaching. Every single letter in the New Testament will find itself addressing at some point or another false teaching. False teaching always has always will be one of our main enemies. Believers being deceived. You can go all the way back to garden. Guess what happened? Deception. Deception about what God said. Deception about His character. Deception about what will He fulfill His word? Will He do what He actually says He will do? False teaching, it's the challenge with false teaching is it, it starts off small, it starts off seemingly insignificant, and then it grows and it takes over and it destroys. You know, I, I, like, to play, I like to play golf when I can, and, and, and I'm reminded of the, the illustration of false teaching. You know, when you swing a golf club, if, if, that, if that face of that golf club when it meets the ball is just one millimeter off a square... Two, two inches in front of the ball doesn't really show up. A foot in front of the ball doesn't really show up. 250, 300 yards down the driveway, you know where you end up? You end up in somebody's backyard and you're, you're, you're knocking on the door trying to replace the screen of, that covers the pool that your ball just ended up in. One millimeter. One millimeter off square. It, again, it doesn't show up. It may not show up one second later. May not show up one foot later, but down the road, you find yourself in places that you, you never wanted to be. False teaching, wrong doctrine. It starts off small, it starts off seemingly insignificant. And in our culture today, false teaching and, do and doctrine are, is challenging the church. Even within the church, churches are coming up with theologies that have universally been agreed upon for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And now, all of a sudden, things that we've held precious, things that we've universally agreed upon, now that the culture is completely shifted in some ways, now all of a sudden those, those, those doctrines aren't in vogue anymore. And the church inside the church and outside the church, we're, we're failing. And it's false doctrine. And, and, and again, we, we talked about this with our culture series. First, three, First Peter 3.15 says, Set apart, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being prepared to give it an answer for the hope that is in you. If you go back one verse to three, 
1 Peter 3.14, it talks about do not fear man. The source of most of this false doctrine, the source of most of this false living, the source of most of these things is wanting to fit into culture. It's fearing man more than we fear God. And we will never be in a position to defend our great and awesome God until we fear Him more than we fear man. Hebrews 10, I think it's verse 31, says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. False teaching. And and again, what we're dealing with in our culture, we we love to think, I'm a big sports guy and you hear all the time, greatest game ever, greatest game ever. Look, Look, we live in a day where we're, we throw these things around. We, you know, nobody ever lived in a time like we live. Listen to me. Paul faced the same things that we face today. I, w- I dare say they may have even been stronger. The issue has always been the battleground that the enemy will always challenge us on. It boils down to doctrine. What do you believe about God and what do you believe about the gospel? Those are the battlegrounds. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. This Bible is totally truthful. We either believe that or we don't. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scriptures God breathed and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, righteousness. So the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This God, that, that verse tells us that this word flowed from God. He's the originator. Well, guess what? There's no error in him. There's no change in him. There's no James 1.17, no shifting of shadows. He's perfectly truthful and pure. Therefore, everything that comes out of him is perfectly truthful and pure. It stands the test of time. Why? Because he doesn't change. His standards don't change. Culture changes. Again, this is inside and outside the church. This isn't just outside. This is, these are, I mean, you name it. Whether it's a blog, an article, pastors inside, from the pulpit, denominations, it's wrong doctrine. You, you see it on your handout, just a general, I'm going to give you a general rule of thumb. One of the, one of the things you, we, we learned in seminary, one of the things you learn as you look back at, at history and and. and and, and study the Bible, and, and you'll see it on the top of your handout. I think it's there. Here it is. Just it, when you're reading a blog, when you're reading an article, when you're reading anything you're reading outside of the Bible, all these things that we go to, unfortunately, more than we go to the Bible, if we're honest. I'm going to give you a rule of thumb to decipher. And here it is. If it's new, it's probably not true. Just, just settle that. If it's new... It's probably not true. And here's what I find. Here's what I find that is amazing. Some amazingly, all of this new doctrine fits with culture. Makes the church fit in with culture. Makes the culture alike. It, it lessens the difference, the distinctiveness between the church and culture. Here's what I understand when I look at history and when I look at this Word of God. Never has that been the case. Never. Never. We're called to be distinct from our culture. We're called to be holy, not fit in. There, there's, nothing, there's nothing in here. God did not write this that I would fit in. 
He didn't command me to 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, therefore be holy as your God is holy. He didn't say, hey, fit in. He said, be holy. Here's what I noticed. The more I pursue this, the more the world around me, I don't fit in. And yet, amazingly, all these changes that we see, are exact, they, they jive with culture. That ought to be your first warning. Hear me. If you don't have not, that's your first warning that, it, that something's wrong. And it's false doctrine. I don't have to name the issues where the church is buckling. They're everywhere. And, and it's all for the, it's because of the fear of man. We fear man more than we fear a holy God. We want to fit in with man. Listen, we don't, I, you're talking about a guy who, who has an unhealthy version of people-pleasing. I love to fit in. There's nothing about being hated that I look forward to. But here's, the, here's something that, that I settled in my heart a long time ago. To the best of my ability, I'm going to live to please God and not man. And if that means offending you in order to please God, then we're going to have to deal with the consequences. And one of the reasons that I chose 1 Timothy is because it is going to force us and allow us to look at these issues, many of the issues that we deal with culturally, we're going to look at them from a biblical standpoint. How the church is to be organized, where the church is to be focused, how a church is to function in its culture. It's going to give us the opportunity to address biblical roles of men and women in the church. It's going to give us the opportunity to view how we view our possessions. It's going to allow us to, to opportunity to look at the importance of doctrine and how real doctrine and how the gospel impacts our lives. T turn with me, look over in, in 1 Timothy 3.15. Circle this verse. In, in my Bible, I have the words written, key verse, next to this verse. This is the reason. If, you, if you'll study the Bible... Almost universally, the writers of Scripture will give you a clue. They'll tell you why they're writing. These were not just random, random letters. It wasn't like, well, I, I, Paul just woke up one day and thought, you know what, I think I'll write a letter to Timothy. That's not at all what was going on. Universally, there was, a, there was an issue that needed to be dealt with, and these letters are God's way through the writer of dealing with those issues. And 1 Peter 3.15 tells us why or 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us why Paul wrote this letter. He says, but in case I am delayed, I write so that. that I love it when it's that easy. Like this is, this is low fruit. You don't even need a, a master's degree in seminary to figure this one out. I, here's why I write this. So that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That, that is why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. To teach us how one is to act, to tell Timothy how to organize the church and how to lead the church so that believers would understand how they are to conduct themselves as believers. It, it's right there. That, that's why we've, we've titled this series House Rules. You, you, all of us who are parents, we have some rules in our house. And, and you know what? You're to follow those rules. Well, guess what? God has some rules. I know we don't like to hear that. We like to think of God as a God of grace and all this stuff. Guess what? God has some rules for His people. He, he, he demands, He commands, 
that his people behave a certain way. And, 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 and it's all based upon the hope that we have in the gospel. Everything that Paul commands, everything that he writes is founded upon, is centralized on who they are as the people of God. It's the gospel. It always goes back to the gospel. Our lives are, and how we live are right responses to the gospel. You see all throughout Scripture, oftentimes they'll, they'll, they'll teach the doctrine part of it, and then they'll start with a phrase, therefore. Or, or Paul will say, in view of this. The gospel is the reason we live the way we live, because we have been redeemed, we, have been, we are being sanctified. One day we will, we are, we will be glorified. It's the gospel. Right attitudes, biblical responses to the gospel of having been saved, of having God's name declared upon you. It's the center of the letter. It's the gospel. And what the believers in Paul's day needed was not just simply human wisdom. It was, it was the truth of God's word, and they needed to fix their hope solely upon God's word. And so with that backdrop, we're not even going to get through this, we're not even going to get through this sermon today. I'm going to, I'm going to, I was looking ahead, I'm going to stop, but, but we're only going to look at verse 1. This will be the beginning of our three-year study of 1 Timothy. <laughs> three years, we're going to dig in here for three years. One verse at a time, I'm just kidding, it may just be two years. But even this sermon, there's a second part to this sermon, and now that's going to be the third part, because this one's going to be divided in two. I want to fix our eyes and fix our minds today on, on one word. I remember Alistair Begg, I heard him preach one time, and he said, yeah, I hear in his great accent. I wish I had an accent like Alistair Begg. Like he, he, he could say the dumbest thing, and he still sounds intelligent doing it. Me, with this accent, I sound dumb all the time, no matter what I'm saying, whether it's intelligent or not. But I remember he said, he said, I hear preachers all the time, and they talk about it. They're going to preach on one word. He says, they're liars. Nobody can preach on one word. Well, I'm going to attempt to preach on one word in spite of what he says. And I love Alistair Begg. I'm going to use a lot of words, three summer sermons worth at this pace, to talk about one word. And it's the word hope. It's the word hope. Look, look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. You know, hope is really a word that we hear a lot in our culture. And if you ask somebody from, from, from a, a, a non-believer's de definition of hope, it would, it would be anything but certain. There'd be nothing solid about it. And yet, biblically, this word carries everything for us. Hope. If you were to do a word study on this word, this word is central to everything. Listen to me. We are not yet what we will be. And you know how I live today based on what I will be? Hope. Hope. Hope drives everything. Hope. And so I want to I I talk about that because our, our hope, the Christian's hope, the hope that God offers through Jesus Christ is completely different than the hope that the world offers, and also the things of the world. We're, we'll look at it eventually. We'll get to verse 6, maybe in 20, uh, chapter 6 in 2020. But he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. 
You see Satan's ploy in your life and my life? To get us to place our hope in places that are uncertain instead of the certainty of God and His Word. That's the challenge for all of us. It could be your family. It could be your spouse. It could be your money. It could be your health. Listen to me. All of those things are uncertain. I, I have no idea what tomorrow holds for any of those in my life. You have no idea what any of those hold tomorrow. Not regards to my health. Not regards to my relationship with Karen. Not regards to my kids and their health. Not regards to my money. None of that. Even the uncertainty of what if I found I can find my hope if I'm not careful in being the pastor of this church. It's uncertain. It's uncertain. And yet God offers a certain hope through the gospel. And that's what Paul starts with here. Again, even in taking the Lord's Supper today, it was a reminder of where our hope is fixed and placed. And so I want to I attack this word today by looking really at what biblical hope is. My intention next week was to talk about the response, but I'm going to finish looking at what biblical hope is. But the first thing you see on your hand, I, I, want, us to, I want us to understand biblically what, what, what biblical hope hope is and help us to understand the certainty of which God offers us through Christ and you'll see there on your handout biblical hope is the confident expectation that all God has promised in his word is true and will happen as he says it will listen I asked some people this week that 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 I did not know to be believers what is hope here's here's some of the things they said it's wishy-washy it's flimsy it's unstable, it's uncertain, left to chance. Bottom line, here, here's the bottom line to all of their answers. It lacked real substance. It lacked real substance. There was no real substance. It was based on something totally outside, just totally left up to chance. And yet, when you compare that to the biblical definition of hope, which is strong and confident and expectant and assured and has real substance. Turn with me to a, a Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter Hebrew 11, verse 1. We, we've looked at this verse before, but I want to show you something. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, I'm going to read it for the sake of time. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. That word assurance can be also translated substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Literally, it's a sure thing. In, in other places in Greek literature, that word is interpreted title deed. For those of you, and we don't do this in America because it's, it's just not the way we do it. But if you ever paid off your house, you know what the bank would give you? They'd give you a title. They'd give you the deed. You know what that says? That you own it free and clear. Nobody can take it away. It's, 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 as long as you pay your taxes, as Tim says over here, as long as you pay your taxes, that, that's the... I, I realized that when I got older. You know, you think as a kid, you got it figured out. And I'm thinking, man, you know, you just... You pay your house off, you don't got no bills the rest of your life. You pay your house off, you get to pay property taxes every year. And like, I own this thing and I got to pay the government to live here. This is a good deal. 
for them. But yeah, you pay your taxes, but it's yours. It's, it's, it's substance. Uh, look, our hope is so assured and it is so rooted. You say, how can you say that, Chris? Because you see it on your hand now. Biblical hope is steady and certain because it is rooted in the person and character of God himself. Our hope is not in something, it is in someone. It is in the character of someone. Therefore, it has substance. This is, this is more than wishful thinking. Listen, we're, our hope is in the character of the God from whom, from whom which everything in this Bible flows. That's our hope. N- namely, our hope has been built on promises that God made. Listen, a promise is only as good as the character of the person giving the promise. And yet we have a Bible that explains, that reveals the character of God. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken it and will he not make it good? 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. We're, we're celebrating this time of year the reality that even after thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God went back to a promise that He made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, and He provided the sacrifice. He provided the lamb. You go back even farther to Genesis 3.15, and He says, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but I'm going to produce a seed that's going to crush your head. I give you Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. God's a promise keeper. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies God made. You know what? He fulfilled every one of them. You go to Isaiah 9, 6, prophecy about Jesus. Go to Micah 5, 2, prophecy about Jesus. Even the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem didn't exist. And yet God said, no, I'm, 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 I'm going to bring my son into this world. I'm going to bring him into Bethlehem. What? We have a certain hope because of the unwavering character of the God who provides the promises. That's my point. We have a certain hope because of God's character. I mean, th- again, God has made promises to his people. Our whole salvation, my whole livelihood is staked on the promise that there is salvation found in no one else other than Jesus Christ. If that is not true, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, if God has not been raised from the dead, we are fools to be pitied. Fools. Every single one of us are a fool for being here if Christ has not been raised from the dead. People say, well, you know, it'd be good to live a moral life. Why would it be good to live a moral life if you're not going to pay for immorality? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, if we all just eat, sleep, and that's what Paul says, if there's no God, then just eat, drink, and be merry. If there's no resurrection, if there's no accountability for my life, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do everything I want to do because there's no consequences. And yet the opposite of that is the truth of the Bible that I'm going to stand before a holy God and give an account. And even as a believer, I'm going to stand before a holy God and I'm going to give an account for how I stewarded His salvation. And James 1.17 says, that talks about the character of God. It says, in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. 
He says, every good gift comes from the Father above, in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. He's trustworthy. My hope and your hope, a Christian's hope, is secure because it's founded in the, the person, the God whom has authored this word. Listen to me. If God changed, if, if God's character was not certain, if it was not sure, listen to me, everything would crumble. Because here, here, trace this. If God changed, how do I know today that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient? How do I know tomorrow is still going to be sufficient? How, how do I know that down the road, he's not going to say it's Christ plus something? You know what? I changed my mind. It's really Christ plus something else. See, but he doesn't change. Therefore, the salvation that was good today is good tomorrow, is good the next day, is good forever. Because God doesn't change. Well, maybe, maybe if God changes, maybe he realizes, you know what, Chris isn't exactly the person that I thought he would be, and you know what, I'm going re, to renege on my adoption of Chris. The reality is, if God changes, if his character isn't certain, then that's a fear. That's no fear I have, because I know the God of this Bible doesn't change. And he's a promise keeper. Therefore, my hope can be certain. Because his promises are certain. And it all goes back to the character of God. And the reality is, is this, the more, that's like tonight with the middle schoolers, we're starting off with who God is. They need to understand the greatness of the God of this Bible. And my fear is that so many of, of not only them, it's for middle school boys. I, I, by the way, I need somebody to teach the middle school girls. I'll provide all the material. I'm writing the material. I'll provide it all for you. I need somebody to teach that. My fear is, just throwing that out, my fear is that not only our middle schoolers, not only our high schoolers, but my fear is their parents have very, very limited knowledge of the greatness of the God of this Bible. And, and listen to me, that affects how we live. And we're telling the world that we serve a small God. When the reality is, is the God of this Bible is a great big God. An awesome God. And, and He has revealed Himself and He has given us precious promises. Again, even Romans, I'm thinking about it, off Romans 15, I think it's Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Why, why, why do we have this? Do we have hope to see that through thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God did exactly what He said He would do to sinners just like you and me? We read about Moses. We read about Joseph. We read about David. We read about Samuel. We read about the prophets. We read about Ruth and Rahab and Esther. And we see God's faithfulness to do exactly what He said He would do in Genesis 3.15. He has done that. Everything in that Old Testament is God's faithfulness to carry that seed from Adam and Eve to carry a perfect seed all the way to Jesus Christ through the line of David, that Jesus Christ would be the perfect fulfillment of the Messiah, the King that he would meet all the qualifications. God did that because he's faithful. 
And, and, and biblically, everything about our hope points back to our salvation as a reminder of who we are in Christ. That's why we partake of the Lord's Supper, I said, to remind us of who we are. Even in verse 1, look at what he says. Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This was not just an ordinary commission. Paul was speaking on behalf of Christ and of God. That gave him a tremendous authority. But look what he says. According to the commandment of God our Savior. We, we, in, in, we, we mainly as a church focus on the New Testament to our own hurt. And we think of Christ being the Savior. Listen to me. God was the one who authored salvation. God authored salvation. You go back to the Old Testament, you'll see time and time again that God is the one that's referred to as Savior. And think about it this way. God is the architect of our salvation. Christ is the means by which we can be saved. But, but Christ came at the commandment of His Father. And Paul's mission was one to share that good news that the saving God of the Scriptures has declared a way for all men, all women to be forgiven of their sins. And it's singularly in the person of Jesus Christ. That all men, all women, can be adopted into God's family through the blood, through the belief, trust, through looking upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your singular hope. Not, not just praying a prayer or doing something in one moment of time and then going off and living. That's not biblical salvation. I, I get it. I, I was reading a thing that John was showed me. I was reading it. We have totally obliterated the reality of, of, of John 10, the security of our salvation. Once saved, always saved. That is an absolutely true doctrine. Hear me. If you're really saved. And to think that we've reduced it to just say some key words and then go off and live like a fool the rest of your life or go off and live however you want to the rest of your life and then, well, little Johnny said something when he was five years old. Guess what? I can, teach, I can get my kids to say anything I want them to say at five. And the reality is, is those who are really saved, you know what they do? They persevere in the Scriptures. They persevere in that hope. They never wave. They continually live a life looking to the hope of Jesus Christ for their salvation. They persevere. I'm not trying to get everybody to question their salvation. I am trying to get us to understand biblically what these doctrines teach. Look, look we, we hope... Hope deals with something future. Almost everything about our salvation, we have present benefits to be, to be sure. But look at, look at what it says in Romans 8, 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Do you see it? The, the, the truly saved person Day by day by day by day, hopes in Christ. And they eagerly wait their salvation. They eagerly wait the fulfillment of that salvation. Day by day by day by day, they look to Christ. And to be sure, again, there are past benefits, there are present benefits, but primarily there are future benefits. In that same, in that same chapter, Paul says, you have not received a spirit of slavery, again, leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, listen to what he says. You're an heir if, 
if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Interesting. If, if, for I consider, verse 18, that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. You know what Paul says? There's coming a day where God's going to settle his accounts and you'll be more than grateful. You'll be more than grateful when he pays you. When he settles those accounts, you'll be more than grateful. It'll all be worth it. I mean, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Most of what we're trusting in, most of our blessings are, are in many ways unseen. The, the fact that Christ's righteousness has been credited to us, that, that, that judicially we have been justified, declared righteous, that we have been totally forgiven of our debt, that the Spirit lives in us, that we have an inheritance waiting for us, that one day we will be glorified, that one day we're getting a new body, one day we'll spend eternity in the presence of our... All of those unseen realities, and, yes, we, and yet we hope in them. And yet, because of the character of the God who offered those promises, we can be absolutely certain that those are true because of His character. Our hope, biblical hope, has substance to it. And, and biblical hope changes everything. Listen, you see I'm on your hand out real quick. Biblical hope, biblical hope affects how we view ourselves. Listen, we go literally in salvation, we go from orphan to adopted son, co-heir of the whole world. Think about that one. Believer, you are co-heir of everything that Christ is heir to. Think about that. That, that God becomes our, our daddy, as, as Romans 8.15, in whom we have the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. That, that our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is not of this world. That we have a new name, that we have an inheritance. Do you view yourself as that way, believer? Believer? Do you think about yourself? Do you see yourself that way? The, the reality of our hope ought to change the way we view ourselves. But biblical hope also affects what we value. You, you go back to, to Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. What we value. We, we don't value the things of, of this world. They don't hold prominence and sway any longer. We value the things that... Christ values. He says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Interesting. I go back to what do you value? What do you value? Biblical hope not only affects how we view ourselves and what we value, but biblical hope, listen to me, affects what we pursue. It affects what we pursue. And, and, and life ceases to be about our glory, and it begins to be about God's glory. We, we've said this time and time again, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 1, 18, that in all these things, that in all these things, Christ would be preeminent. First place in our lives. 
And listen, all of this, all of this is because we have a sure and certain hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that everything that God promised in His Word will come true and He will do everything that He said He will do. Listen, the fulfillment, though future, is as certain as anything else. It's the most certain thing in all the world. Why? Because of the certainty of God's character. We can bank our lives on it. We can be confident that the realities of this Word will be true. And all of this solely and singularly because of who Christ is in our lives. All of these blessings only come to you and I through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to get them. Through, through hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to stop there. We'll do verses, we'll do 2 and 3. It's 1047. Lord's Supper took a little longer than I had anticipated. But um, listen, the reason why we focus on this word, the reason why we focus on this word in here, the reason why we focus on this word in small groups, the reason why we you know, try to focus on this word, and, and I meet with guys all throughout the week, is because, listen, this is what sustains and sources your hope. Romans 15, 4, I write these things to you so that you will have hope through the perseverance of the Scriptures. You, you deprive yourself of this word, you're, you're starving your hope. You're starving your ability to persevere. You're starving your, your, your strength. And my fear is that so many of us, I challenge the middle schoolers, middle school boys three weeks ago in their class, we're given 86,400 seconds a day. And guess what? We won't even give him 900 of those. That's 15 minutes. I challenge each one of them. Give God 900 of those 86,400 seconds a day. And see over time what happens. My prayer is that all of a sudden that 900 seconds won't become adequate because they see how great a God has, has beckoned them into His presence. And now all of a sudden 900 seconds becomes 1,500. Becomes 3,000. And they fall in love with the God of this Bible so that they can put down Twitter and Facebook and all these other distractions and pursue the God of this Bible that provides hope. And, and I would say the same to their parents. I would challenge every single one of us in here, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're, we're going to get there and I'll close with this, but I'll, but I'll tip my hat. Isaiah, I think it's 49, 23. If you want to memorize a verse, if you want to work on memorizing a verse that will change your life, here it is, Isaiah 49, 23, and we'll close those, we'll, we'll look at this more fully in the coming weeks, but those who hopefully wait for me, God is writing this, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. It, it, it will be, and I, and I say that, I know that there are people in here that are walking through junk that I can't do anything about and I wish I could. And yet it is a reminder that our hope is in the Lord. It's not in man. It's not in the things of this world. And I pray that we would be a church that lives that out and the world around us sees that. 
that, that our hope, that, that the hope that we have in Christ, it doesn't alleviate our circumstances, it transcends our circumstances.